1: We hope you're having a wonderful summer wherever you are with trips to the beach or the mountains or maybe just a little bonus time in your backyard with extra daylight. We've had a hot streak over the last couple of weeks here in Portland, but that's meant some very plump tomatoes have started to pop up on the vines in our backyard, and it's been a delightful surprise. Uh, we're very much enjoying the summer here in Portland. Uh, I'm your host, Ian Fisher, uh, filling in today for Elizabeth Eaton, and we've got a terrific show lined up for you today. For most of our time together, we'll be answering listener questions with a study back and forth across topics in admissions and financial aid, and a reminder to you that if you'd like to connect with us at any time, you can always send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com with any question related to admission and financial aid, uh, questions about Other things, we're not going to have the answers, but we're really good at those two topics. Uh, Before we open up the forum to your questions, we wanted to start the show today with a talk about first-year abroad programs, and that's how we're going to fill our first segment. I don't know that we've ever covered first-year abroad programs on this show before, and we're lucky in that one of my newest colleagues, Sarah Calvert-Kubram, is here to talk to us all about what those first-year abroad programs look like. Welcome to the show, Sarah.
2: Thank you, Ian. I'm excited.
1: So, Sarah, you come to us most recently from a senior admissions role over at Lewis and Clark College, which is across the river from where I live. But you you also spent some time working at Northeastern University earlier in your career managing the, uh, the NUIN program. Is that right?
2: Yes, that's correct.
1: And the NUIN program is is a flavor of what we're calling a, a freshman study abroad program. But I I would imagine that this is something that our listeners maybe aren't aware of. They know what freshmen are, they know what study abroad Mm -hmm. is, but when you put those two things together, what does that make? So can you just describe for us what a freshman study abroad program is and and maybe even tell us a little bit about the NUN program as well?
2: Yes, of course. Those are great questions. Um, I think you're right that more often than not, people assume that studying abroad happens as a junior in college. Whereas increasingly, it is becoming more and more common for some, of course not all, but some colleges and universities to have an option for students to study abroad for perhaps first semester or sometimes even the first year of their college experience. Um, Of course, I cannot speak for all colleges or universities, but I did very much enjoy my time with the NUN program at Northeastern and how this specific program works is that students can be admitted to Northeastern with a pathway where they actually spend their first semester of college abroad in a different country. Um, it's grown since I was there, but when I was there, that was Greece or Costa Rica, Ireland, England, Australia. Those are some examples. The students actually went with a cohort, a group of incoming Northeastern students, with a group of trained Northeastern staff, so program administrators and leaders, as well as upper-level Northeastern students. So typically in their third or fourth year of college, and they were there as a student leader, kind of like a resident advisor that you might have, you know, on a campus campus in the United States. So they went with that group to one of our partner universities or abroad programs in those countries where they actually took a full academic load of classes that transferred directly to Northeastern. So they were still graduating on time. They were actually classes that were approved by the academic deans back in Boston, to make sure that we had options for everyone. So that could even include engineers, um, upcoming nurses, humanities, social sciences, et cetera. We had specialized classes, which was fantastic. While they were abroad, the programs were different in each country. Sometimes they were living on a college campus in residence halls. Sometimes they were living with host families. There was a big array. But all of the programs also provided really rich cultural engagement opportunities, excursions and trips around the country, et cetera. Is that helpful?
1: Yeah, that's helpful. It's, it's, a little, it's also a little strange, right? I mean, and when we think about sort of the college experience, when we send students out in high school to visit college campuses and the questions that they ask, they're sort of looking for that fit, that transition in that first year. Am I gonna like this campus? Uh What are the dorms like? Those kinds of questions. And these programs don't allow for that that first year or that first semester on campus. And so it really changes a lot about what a student might be expecting when they start that college experience. Um, how, How do students kind of wrap their head around that? Is that something that they should be thinking about well in advance of the application process or is it something that they really start to evaluate as they consider the viability of this program after getting into a college?
2: You know, I, I think that that really depends on the student. Um, first, first of all, I think you're right that fit is very important, be that for going to a campus here in the U.S. or for taking this big leap of an adventure to go abroad. I think that because not all schools offer programs like this, it's great to find out when entering the application process that this is a possibility. Um, Some students are starting to actively look for it because they think it's intriguing, whereas other students have never heard of it or perhaps a bit intimidated, and that's okay. Um, I think that for a student who knows that they love adventure, they can start looking for it intentionally, whereas a lot of students are finding out about it once they're admitted and then thinking, huh, (laughs) is this something I want to do? So I think it really depends on the student. It depends on how excited you are to go abroad, how excited you are about that specific uh, university. So for instance, like Northeastern, um, what I would say though is that there are some good things to think about in terms of what some of the benefits or challenges of a program like this might be. Would it be helpful if I explained some of those as things to think about?
1: Yeah, I think I think some of those pros and cons are, are really helpful. I, I wanted to before you jumped into that that answer, which I'd love to yeah. get to. Um, I wanted to ask about this kind of program as an option versus um, sort of as the sole pathway to joining a particular campus. So, so you know, I had a student a couple of years ago, and we talked about this before the show, who was really into Northeastern. She really, really wanted to go there. She was not offered freshman admission to the campus, but was given the opportunity to do the, the NUN program. Um, is it something that students can elect to do if they want to, or is it only sort of made available as an option to certain students? And is it often kind of a replacement for typical freshman admission?
2: Great question. So Northeastern's culture ethos and setup is very specific. So the way they do it is um, they actually have four possible admissions outcomes. So a student can apply to Northeastern, and they can be admitted to come to Boston as a freshman, just like you would think of with a traditional college experience. That is outcome possibility one. The possibility two is being offered the opportunity to go abroad for the first semester and then arrive in Boston moving forward in January. That would probably be what your student got. Um, That is not something that students are opting into, but an admissions outcome. And then, of course, students can also be waitlisted or denied. Northeastern, um, it works really well because Northeastern is also a co-op school where most students do three, real life work experience co-ops, kind of like internships during their degree. So students are constantly coming and going from campus. And what that means is that they can easily accommodate several hundred more students incoming freshmen in January than they can for the first semester in September. So rather than being something that people are opting into, it's just allowing more students to come to Northeastern. Um, And I think that they're doing it in a way that makes sense with the Northeastern values. Northeastern is at its most incredibly global and also prioritized hands-on learning experiences. So I think it fits the ethos of someone interested in Lewis and Clark, uh, excuse me, Lewis and Clark is where I just worked, Northeastern. <laughs> it fits the ethos um, of Northeastern for a student to go abroad, to get out there and have experiential learning opportunities. So it is a pathway versus something that someone opts into. Um I do know, however, that there are some other colleges and universities that have ways that you can apply for the first semester abroad um, with a further degree of selectivity. So that is a good nuance to look at that specific university to understand how that might work. Does that clarify things?
1: Yeah, that's really helpful. I, I just wanted people to sort of think about whether this is something they can opt into or wh- where it might sort of show up as an opportunity. And then I think we can get yeah. to this question of what the pros and the cons are. And I would love to hear your perspective on that because you were so close to that program at Northeastern. And I think you you know quite a bit about what, what a family might consider um, when it comes to choosing this as an option or not.
2: Of course. Um, So it was interesting, because when I was at Northeastern, this program was really starting to build momentum and grow quickly, so what that meant is a lot of students and parents had most certainly never heard of it when they got this admissions um, invitation, whereas I think today, there are more and more students that are like, oh, yeah, I I heard of a friend that did that, so I think that that understanding is probably mounting. However... I think that there are a lot of nuances to think of. of Is this a good opportunity? Does this fit my students specifically? What are some of the pros? And instead of cons, I'm gonna say challenges to consider. Um, So for pros, I will be honest, I'm very biased. I am a big proponent of study abroad um, and some of these experiences, but it does have to be for the right student. What I'd say is a few specific pros are, that we live in an increasingly global and interconnected multicultural society. And I really have seen with the students that I worked with at Northeastern that a program like this allows a young adult at a young age, we're talking usually a 17 or 18-year-old, to show to future employers and internships, et cetera, that they have lived experiences in navigating cultural sensitivity. They might Mm. have some enhanced foreign language abilities from their time abroad. They have some nuanced autonomy, independence, and maturity that is hard to demonstrate from the traditional 18 first year of college experience, and they have a really interesting ability to navigate the unknown. If you look at almost every job description, be it entry level or higher up, they want qualities like this, and I find that students who did this program had a really phenomenal ability to show that, wow, yes, I I can check all those boxes. I'd also say that it provides these young people with truly interesting and often unique experiences um, to bring back to the classroom, to their roommates, to their friendships, relationships, to put in their cover letters, interviews, et cetera. Um, something that catches the eye and is really interesting. Um, putting career et cetera aside, I'd say that it's also a really amazing adventure. So this is a great opportunity for a student that sees college as the opportunity to truly push their comfort zone to try new things, um, someone that really seizes adventure as an exciting thing. I'd also say that perhaps a less tangible benefit that becomes really real in hindsight is the really, really deep friendships. When you go abroad in a tight-knit cohort like this, the friendships you, t- you make often can really last not just through college but beyond. The students I work with at Northeastern that I'm still in touch with often have reunions. Some of them are working together at jobs. I know of one that's um, engaged to be married. But these are really profound relationships that impact you. You also mm-hmm. make friends abroad. So it really broadens your kind of cultural and social capital all over the world, which I think is exciting.
0: Yeah, Any and questions I...
2: about those pros before I dive well, into I think... of the possible challenges? Yeah,
1: Yeah, I just wanted to sort of add that I, I think that one of the things that a lot of students see as a con, and I know you're going to get into some of those challenges, um, is that you don't get to start on campus right away, and so in some ways you feel yeah. like you're behind in terms of meeting friends and making connections, but, but your point about sort of having that deeper relationship that might come with being abroad with a smaller group of people, uh, in some ways, for some people, could actually be a better experience than just diving right into dorm life um, as, a, as a freshman. So, it, you know, it seems like you're missing something, but you're also getting something that replaces that to some degree. Um, but let's, let's do talk a little bit about those challenges. And we've got a couple of more minutes. So I think you've got some time to highlight a couple of challenges there. Yeah. So you hit
2: on the first one, which is that for some students, they they don't want to miss out on what they see as that traditional first-year experience. And honestly, that's a personal choice. I think some people really want to be at the football games and have that experience and be on campus. And for others, those tight-knit friendships are even better. So I think it's thinking about what's right for you. Um, Another huge reality is going off to college, but especially in a different country, can mean that you're going to get homesick. Um, I'll argue that technology has some phenomenal ways to counter this. Um, not to say that I'm old, but it's very, very different than when I was abroad in high school and college before Facebook and Snapchat and FaceTime existed. Yeah, yeah. Um, totally I, different. I think that that can be balanced, yeah. Um, one thing I'll just acknowledge for parents listening is that most students thrive in these programs, but it can be a big change in the emotional expectations you had for yourself. I think that many parents think that they're going to send their student off to college, maybe just a town away, a state away. But you might be putting them onto an airplane to go to Greece, for example. Um, I vividly remember being at the airport with one of my favorite student's moms as she burst into tears as he went through security at the airport to go to Costa Rica. Um, long story short, it was such a great experience for him that she actually became an ambassador volunteer for us. She spoke at orientations and she and I are still in close contact years later. But I do want to validate that it's something to think about. Another thing I'll just say briefly is that Students doing this are going to have to navigate culture shock, going and living in a different country, as well as what's called reverse culture shock and coming back to the United States. I think, though, that that can be a rewarding challenge, but a challenge nonetheless. The other thing I'll say is that for many students, um, they need to have a serious conversation with their parents about, budgeting and saving and how to spend money while abroad. I think parents also need to think critically about asking a lot of great questions about how the classes transfer to really support their student to be very organized in the summer before they go to make sure they get their visa to make sure they're properly packed to go abroad. None of this is insurmountable but I think it's an additional layer of logistics, policies, steps, things that need to be accomplished before launching that college experience if that makes any sense.
1: No, that's fantastic, and, and I think a great place to leave it. And, and one thing that you are really reinforcing for me, and I think for the listeners as well, is that given you are so close to this program professionally, um, you know all the details and all of these different considerations associated with it. And if you're a family that's considering this option for your student, go right to the program directors and talk to them about these pluses and minuses and some of their tips. I think that they're going to be really, really capable um, of, of, in sort of helping you to understand the the pluses and minuses of a program like this. And Sarah has gotten us off to a really terrific start with her understanding of how these programs work. So Sarah, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on the show today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me and enjoy the rest of the show.
1: Absolutely. And that was Sarah's first visit to the show. but um, And she was on the hot seat for the first time, did a fantastic job. And, and we know it's not going to be her last. So um, when we come back, we're going to dive right into listener questions and don't go anywhere.
3: Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting in.
0: Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors you can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
3: News, News. opinions, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to Getting In, a college
1: coach conversation. And as I promised in our introduction today, we're going to spend the rest of our time answering your questions listener questions. Um, And we've just got a ton of fantastic questions out there. Um, And coming along with me to answer everything that I don't know about financial aid and also to ask all of your questions on your behalf is my colleague, recently relocated to Minnesota, uh, Kathy Ruby. Hey, Kathy. Hey, Ian. Welcome to the show. Uh, You've got a different view um, than the last time we spoke, but I imagine yes. the same level of expertise and excellence, right? It, it hasn't changed since you moved. Uh
2: yeah, I of weeks brought ago. that
4: with me.
1: Okay, good. <laughs> you didn't leave it back back home. Uh, great. So let's just, just dive right in into Indiana the question. Yes, left in Indiana. Um why don't we start with you? You can ask me a question the that comes from admission and we'll go to financial aid and we'll just do a little volley back and forth like a, a nice friendly game of tennis.
4: All right, that sounds good. So we will start with Anne's question, and she's asking, how much should my daughter worry about a lower math SAT score, 680, if her verbal was very high, 780, if she plans to major in a non-math and science degree program? So mm-hmm. does a lower math make her non-competitive for highly selective and Ivy League schools? She has very high grades and significant extracurricular achievements."
1: Yeah, so... Um... I, I find this question really interesting. I, I want to sort of say, first of all, that 680 is not a lower math score in any world. Um, <laughs> 680, 680 is a fantastic score. It's very high in terms of the percentile. And, you know, I think probably what Ann is referring to is our conversation on previous episodes of the show where we talk about some of the most selective schools, Ivy League and highly selective schools. There is sort of a, um, a line that we want students to cross, um, which is 750 or above. To be in a position where it's not necessarily about being competitive, but it sort of erases testing as an obstacle to a student's admission. So if you're Mm -hmm. above 750 on both sections of the exam, then no admission officer is going to look at your tests and have an issue with it. It allows sort of the other information like those excellent extracurricular achievements like those awesome grades to be the focus of the conversation, which is really what you're looking mm-hmm. for at those highly selective schools. You want testing to not be in the conversation because your testing is good enough that they just go right over it and on to the other content. So what we're looking at here is certainly a very, very high verbal score of 780, and a, a, which is outpacing that 680 score in math and I would say, Anne, that it is important for your daughter to have a higher math score if she's aiming at those very challenging schools. It's important to say that it's only really critical for those top, top schools, about the top 25 or so schools in terms of selectivity in in the country. For most institutions, a 680, 780 is, is really a phenomenal Pair of scores, and you should be really happy with those. But I think if she's going to be aiming at, at Ivys, then she's going to want to retake that exam and, and at least get that math score into the seven hundreds. Uh, with mm-hmm. the special interest of getting it up above seven fifty. You know, there, Kathy, there's a big sort of just psychological difference when you're looking at a score that's in the six hundreds versus the seven hundreds, even though it's only yeah. a twenty point difference. You know, you see those double sevens there, and, and it I think makes a bigger impact. So, so Anne, I would say depending on what your daughter has going on this fall. Um, I would encourage her to uh, think about retaking that test one more time, doing some smart prep, getting ready for it in a way that, that you know, makes sure she can get the best score possible. Um, and then we'll see where things stand from there. Um, it is not an imperative, uh, but it will certainly help her to feel better about putting herself in a position to be successful. All, All right. right. Now, All right. it's my turn. I got a question from Mishi, uh, who has All a nine- so Misha's got a ninth grader and she says, I haven't saved anything for college, right? It's about four years away. Um, I feel like I'll never be able to save the whole amount. Is it even worth it to start saving at this point?
4: Oh, wow. What a good question. Yes. Yes, it is worth it to start saving or save whatever you can. Um, that's that's very, very important. Um, and, and I think the, the key here is... Um, Whatever you can save ahead of time will make things easier once, once your child is in college. So, Because for most families, for most middle-income families and even pretty lower-income families, there's going to be a contribution expected. And you're going to have to come up with that out of cash flow or out of savings or using financing. So the more you can save now, uh, the less you'll need to pay in interest and fees later. So absolutely, even if you feel like you're barely making a dent, um, small amounts add up and, and money comes from a lot of different places. Um, and just getting in the habit of saving also means that when the time comes to pay for college, you can also take that monthly amount that you're saving and put it toward direct expenses. So um, don't give up. Keep, keep trying. Anything you can do um, will help you when the time comes. So so don't give up. We've done the math, actually. In one of our presentations, we show that if you start saving 500 a month, which is, I realize, a, a good chunk of change. But if you start saving 500 a month when your child is in ninth grade, you've essentially saved about $20,000 by the time they get to college, which pretty much covers a year at an in-state public university. So yeah. that's not insignificant. So do whatever you can.
1: Kathy, can I ask a follow-up question on this one? Um, sure. In terms, in terms of saving for a ninth grader, is it, is it best to just throw that into a, uh, a savings account with a high yield? Is it better to open a 529 at this point or is it too late for a 529? What, what sort of is the best savings or what are some savings mechanisms and ways to consider those um, for someone at this later stage in the process?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. And I think um, you could save in a 529 plan uh, if you wanted to. Um, The the advantage of a 529 plan is simply that the earnings will be tax-free as long as you use the money for college. Um, And then in in a 529 plan, you're choosing from a menu of investments. Um, The issue there is that you, you, you want to have some earnings, but you want to also be pretty careful about how you're investing the money so that you're, since you're only four years away, you don't have a lot of time to make up a loss. So Right. Um, yeah, the, so the risk is worse at this point. Yeah, so you'd probably be pr- investing pretty conservatively. Um, and so whether or not you're comfortable with investing at all when you're four years away, if you worry about the principal, if there's at all a risk of losing the principal – um, then maybe a savings account is better for you. And if you can find a <laughs> a high-yield savings account of something like 1% or 2%, at least then you're making something. Um, right. But, yeah, we know savings accounts don't do much these days. But but, right. but at least then you can sleep at night knowing that you're not going to lose your principal. So it just depends on, on how you like to invest. Um, but the issue is with the 529 plan, the only thing that's really tax-advantaged is that the earnings are tax-free. So the question is how much would you have in earnings? Depends on, gotcha. on what you're saving, but all Good. right. Thanks. So now it's my turn again, right?
1: It's, yeah, back to you.
4: Uh, all right. Well, Lori asks, I'm a mom of a rising senior in high school. Huh, congratulations. I have a question about reporting results of AP tests. I'm assuming that it would be best to not report scores of one or two on AP tests, but I'm wondering about threes.
1: Yeah, this is a good question. This actually reminds me of the last time I was in uh, a lift on the way to the airport, and uh, there was uh, the driver said, "Oh, I've got a call for my daughter. I got to answer this." And he picks up the phone, and she wasn't feeling very well, but it was her AP test day. And he said, "You got to get to school. You've got that big AP exam today. Make sure that you get there. This is huge." <laughs> and I wanted to t- I wanted to say to him, "You know, the AP exam seems like a huge deal, but is actually." a small deal in terms of the college application process. And the reason it's a small deal in the application process is because students have total control over whether or not to report scores for the AP exams. There aren't any colleges out there that at the stage at which you apply, you are required to report AP scores. So all you have to do is type in on the the application what scores you've gotten for what tests you've taken. And that allows students the flexibility to report only the scores that are to their advantage. Scores that are fours or fives are pretty obvious. But Lori asks here, what, do you, what about threes? You know, it's obvious we don't want to report ones and twos. Those don't really qualify students for credit, and they're not great scores. Fours and fives are obviously excellence, but those threes are right in the middle. The way that I encourage families to research this is to look at the school's policy for awarding credit for AP exams. Every school, almost every school, is going to award credit for fours or fives, but there are many schools out there that will also award credit for threes, fours, and fives. If you're applying to schools that award credit for threes, fours, and fives, then that means that as an institution, they see those three results as being at the level of a college course on their campus. And so you can comfortably report those threes for that particular school. If you're looking at a school that only awards credits for fours and fives, you'll probably want to withhold those threes and instead let the fours and fives be your AP scores as far as the admission office is concerned. Um, And one important mechanism here is that you can actually submit the common application to one set of schools and then change it afterward. So that you can send one that has just the fours and fives and send it off to the schools that take fours and fives, and then go back, change it to include the threes, and submit it to your next round of schools that accept threes, fours, and fives for credit. And that actually is not going to impact the initial submission to those first sets of schools. And if you have more questions about the Common App, I'd invite you to listen to the show next week when Elise Krantz is going to be on talking about all the changes to the Common App this year and and some other things to pay attention to for the Common Application.
4: Okay, so now I have a follow-up question for you. If we have time. All right. So
1: yeah. Where,
4: where would you find out about a college's transfer policies for uh, AP credits, for AP credits you, test scores?
1: Yeah, you're usually not going to find it anywhere near the admissions page um, because the AP exams <laughs> are not admissions-based tests. They're credit-based tests. And so where you want to look is typically around the registrar's page. The registrar is the office that chooses to help students to award credit. It does credit evaluations for transfer students. So they have all of the policies that are related to that particular part of the the, um, the process. And you can go and look there, or usually the school catalog might have some information about that. Um, and if you're not finding mm-hmm. answers online, you can always pick up the phone and call the registrar's office and ask them about AP credit policies. Um, and they're not going to sort of say, Ooh, why are you asking? What's your name? We're going to take that <laughs> down and pass it off to them. So you don't have to worry about it. You can just call them up and 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 ask the question i think that's perfectly fine all right let's get back down to to a finance question um let's see i like this one this is from scott this is pretty broad kathy uh what pre-tax college savings options are available i think we talked about a little bit of this in the Mishi question that we did first but other pre-tax college savings options that might be available
4: So, good question, Um, and one we get pretty frequently, actually. And the answer is, actually, there are no pre-tax college savings uh, uh, options available, at least at a federal level. So, any way that you save for college um, for your federal taxes, none of it will be pre-taxed. So, there's no way to shelter income to save for college Um, in in terms of specific college savings options. Um, But... That being said, when you choose a 529 plan, so 529 plans are saving options where you contribute post-tax money, and then it goes tax-deferred, and then the earnings remain tax-free as long as you use the money for eligible expenses for the beneficiary of the account at an eligible institution. So that's all, that's all good. Um, but 529 plans are administered through, through the various states. And you can actually choose any state's 529 plan. You can go to a website like SavingForCollege.com, and you can compare the different 529 plans. And you do not have to use the plan that's in your state. Um, however, you might want to take a look at your state plan just to see whether your state offers any state tax deductions for contributing to your state plan. So many right. states will offer a state tax deduction, ranging anywhere from you know $2,000 a year to $15,000 a year um, for contributing to your state's 529 plan. And actually there are even, I think there are seven states where they give a state tax deduction no matter whose 529 plan you contribute to, um, which is pretty nice. They're just trying to encourage you to save for college. They don't care where you do it. They just want you to save for college. So um, so there's no federal pre-tax way to save for college, but there is, there can be, depending on the state you live in, you can get a state tax break. Um, in some states, for and 529. I, I
1: remember going through this process with uh, my kids when when we started saving for them. We were in California, and so we got to look at all these programs because California doesn't have any tax incentives for saving in their own 529. But now that we live in mm-hmm. Oregon. Oregon does um, allow for deductions yeah. up to a certain amount for 529. So we have two different 529s now. We've got one in California, yeah. one in one in Oregon, which is also fine um, because we're invested in essentially the same funds across those, those different 529
4: oh, plan so managers. Even, so your fees are the same because you do have to look. Sometimes for right. some state plans, they may not be a very good plan and they may have high fees and, um, you know, not very good performance, so it may not be worth it to get the state tax break. But it sounds like for you, you've got good funds picked out, and it worked across the
1: plant. I've got my so eye on that expense ratio. That is uh, absolutely <laughs> what I'm what I'm looking at when I'm making investments. I want that thing being low as possible. Um, all right, Kathy. I think we need to take a break uh, so that we can okay. hear from our sponsors. Um, but folks, when we come back, we're going to do more of exactly what we're doing right now. So don't go anywhere.
3: So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you ever given any
0: thought to what is behind your insurance coverage? Many of us don't think of it as more than that premium you pay on a regular basis. Of course, until you actually need to use it. On CYA with Rhonda, you'll learn to cover your assets and find out what all of that insurance mumbo-jumbo really means. If you're looking for a lucrative career option, Rhonda Lukey will explain how to get into the insurance business. Listen live every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. All right, folks,
1: welcome back to getting in a college coach conversation. We're going to get right back into the Q&A. But first, I'd like to do a little school spotlight. Uh, It's one of my favorite parts of the show. It helps me to learn a little bit more about schools that are out there and hopefully turns you on to an option as well. Today, we're going to talk about the University of Waterloo. Driven by a mission to change the world through innovation and research, the University of Waterloo has featured top-notch engineering and co-op programs since its founding in 1957. The School of Engineering, which attracts the greatest number of the university's 32,000 undergraduates, offers majors within 15 unique disciplines, including harder-to-find programs like geological engineering, management engineering, mechatronics engineering, and nanotechnology engineering. Boy, that's specific. But for many students here in the US, it's the School of Computer Science that's actually the greatest draw. With more than 80 faculty members and 3,300 undergrads, the school is considered the largest academic computer science research center in Canada. In addition to majoring in computer science, CS students can customize their degrees by minoring in options such as artificial intelligence, bioinformatics, and human-computer interaction. And for those students seeking additional hands-on work, the university's co-op program virtually ensures that CS graduates will receive six paid internship experiences during their five years on campus. can't beat that. Waterloo's entire co-op program enrolls more than 60% of the undergraduate population and supports majors as diverse as public health and philosophy to architecture and actuarial science. Fun fact – Attending school in Canada means plenty of opportunities for athletic involvement. The university boasts 32 varsity teams in 19 sports, including curling, you knew that was coming, figure skating, <laughs> and Nordic skiing. Got to love those Canadians. Am I right, Kathy?
4: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> all right. Curling Fant- is a
4: varsity sport. Excellent.
1: Yep. that's. I think that's terrific. Um, all right. Let's get back into the Q&A. We've got some more admissions and finance-based questions. Why don't you uh, take a turn here?
4: All right. So, this one is kind of related a little bit to what we just talked about, but Lisa is asking, my school district is considering offering the AP courses necessary for students to earn an AP Diploma, AP Mm -hmm. Seminar, and AP Capstone in parentheses. I know that this is a more recent offering by the College Board. I'm wondering if taking the two additional AP courses gives students any advantages in the application process, in addition to the four other AP courses required to earn the diploma recognition.
0: As yeah, this is to
4: any six AP classes in general. Does right. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah, okay. and it, I think it's it sort of is marginal value for these additional courses and whether there's actual value if you're replacing more traditional AP courses with this capstone and, and seminar project. And um, it's a good question for me because. Uh, about three or four years ago when this was first launched, I was, I was managing our College Coach blog, which you can read at blog.getintocollege.com, um, and wrote a little article about AP Capstone because it was brand new. What I really think about um, the AP program is, is this is an attempt for College Board to compete with the International Baccalaureate program. The IB program is this very integrated curriculum that has six classes along with an extended essay and a theory of knowledge class. And I think this is an attempt by the AP to try and have a similar sort of interdisciplinary effort uh, in terms of the different silos that are connected through various AP classes. Now, because this is a fairly new program, and because I think the AP is necessarily compartmentalized, um, which is to say that when you take AP Calculus BC, it doesn't really interact much, if at all, with AP English literature. Whereas Mm -hmm. in the IB program, you see those things sort of connect. There's a real difference with IB between earning the diploma versus just taking the classes a la carte. And I don't see that same difference within the AP curriculum, mostly because of the newness of this program and sort of the variance across all of the different schools with what they're offering as an AP capstone or an AP seminar class. So right now, I think it's too early for students to put a special premium on earning that AP diploma through these two classes. And I would encourage students to instead stick with the more traditional AP core offerings um, If this is something you're interested in doing because you like the AP seminar idea or you're really interested in what's going to be covered in the AP capstone project, then by all means, go for it. You know, we, we ultimately our course selection isn't about how it looks, but about taking courses that work for us that we really are excited by. Uh, but all things being equal, I would say that you're better off investing your time and energy in more traditional academic courses until the AP can demonstrate that there's some integration between capstone and seminar and all of the other AP classes as well.
4: Mm -hmm. Okay,
1: great Awesome All right, let's turn to the next finance question My financial advisor Now, I'm I'm Ann here, not Ian, but Ann My financial (laughs) advisor suggested that I refinance my home And put the proceeds into an insurance policy So the funds won't count against me for financial aid I'd have about $100,000 available Is this a good strategy? I don't have any other significant assets Only about $20,000 in a savings account
4: all right, well this is a, a good question and it has many the answer has many layers. So right. so the first thing is um, so your financial advisor is suggesting this um, as a way to manage your assets in a way that they won't hurt you in the financial aid formula. But first you actually have to figure out whether you're gonna be eligible for need based aid in the first place. Because if your income, most of the formula that calculates All right, let's step back. When a college figures out your financial need, they take the cost of attendance and they subtract this expected family contribution that's calculated by the government and sometimes by the college. And then if there's a difference, you have financial need, right? So you want your EFC to be as low as possible. But the formula that calculates the EFC is heavily weighted toward income. So first, you have to look at your income and figure out, am I going to qualify for need-based financial aid in the first place? Does it even matter? Um, So if your income is, you know, if you're a family of four with one in college and your income is over 120, 130, you're not going to qualify for need-based aid on an in-state public university. And if it's over 240, 250, you're not going to qualify at a private college either. So those are just some general guidelines. But first, figure out, am I going to qualify for need-based financial aid? If you do think you're going to qualify, well, then it turns out most colleges only require the FAFSA form so the federal mm-hmm. financial aid form, to calculate the expected family contribution. And on the FAFSA, uh, they don't ask you to report your home equity anyway. So you wouldn't really be hiding anything because they're not going to ask for it in the first place. that makes
1: sense? Mm. Yeah.
4: Okay. So the last condition, though, is if you are looking at a school that requires the CSS profile form, which is about two hundred colleges in the country they're mostly private they're mostly more selective. those colleges do look at your home equity but um, but but they would look at your hundred thousand dollars of equity and they would only expect you to contribute about three to six percent of that equity so mm. that hundred thousand dollars of home equity would only increase your contribution by about three to six thousand dollars a year so there's not a huge reason to do it, but if you decide you still want to do that, you really want to look at what's the cost of refinancing your home, like what are all the fees involved, what are all the you know points you're going to have to pay, all those kinds of things. Um, and then you really want to understand what's the liquidity of that life insurance policy and what are the fees and the commissions that are being charged for the life insurance as well. So that's a very long answer to a question. Yeah. But no, but I think that's important. Right from the beginning.
1: Well, we just <laughs> assume that... These assets are going to factor in. They're not always going to. I mean, you first, got to say, will I qualify for aid? Second, you know, what what you know, what is the aid that I'm going to qualify for, um, and and kind of figure out, you know, to what degree this is going to matter to you. Um, I think we always just sort of think there's got to be a way to trick fam to trick schools or you know to to hide yeah. some things, and it, it doesn't always work out that way. It really tends to be income-driven formula.
4: Exactly, and it's also. Um, You know, the other the other situation, of course, is once your need is established, um, many colleges don't meet it fully anyway. So you could do all of this and it really might not make much difference in your eligibility anyway. So
1: interesting. Interesting.
4: All right. So your next question, we haven't time. We have time for another one. We do. Okay. so Lori asks, I'm the mom. Oh, we have two Lories this time. I'm the mom of a junior in high school, so most likely apply to college as undeclared for his major. For schools that he's applying to that request two teacher recommendations, do you think it's okay for him to ask two humanities teachers, English and AP Spanish four, and not have a math or science teacher do one? His English and Spanish teachers know him much better than his trig and physics teachers do.
1: Yeah, I, this, this is a, a pretty brief answer. Um, I, I think that when we talk about recommendations that we would give for who you who you choose to to write your recommendations, um, I think the most important thing is that the recommendations be from core classes. So not electives, not music, not art, but things that are English, math, science, social science, language. That's something we want as the sort of most important aspect of the recommendation. The second most important thing is that the letter of recommendation come from a teacher that has taught a student recently. So that's typically an 11th grade teacher. When we get to 10th grade and especially 9th grade, it's just too long ago for that teacher's perspective to be as relevant or meaningful in the process because you've changed in, those t- in that period of time. The third most important consideration is having some diversity of subject matter. So you certainly wouldn't want two English teachers, one from 10th and one from 11th grade. And it is nice if you can have a teacher that talks about your talent for literature and your, and another teacher that talks about your talent in the science classroom. The reason being that there are different kinds of skills associated with those different classes, and those teachers might be able to speak to those skills slightly differently. That can help to enhance the testimony for your fitness for a particular college admission uh, process. But given all those three considerations that we look for, the thing that's most important is that these letters of recommendation are good, that these teachers like you. So if you have no (laughs) 11th grade teachers who like you and they all think you're awful That's probably not true for Lori's children, but it's true maybe for some kids out there that you probably want to duck that second rule and go get a recommendation letter from a 10th grade teacher. Um, You really want to stick with the core classes. But I think that that third consideration in terms of diversity of subject matter is not nearly as important as the other two. And if we've got two terrific teachers that know Lori's son really well in English and Spanish, then great. Go get those letters of recommendation and don't worry about drawing a physics or math teacher into the process. I will add, um, as another sort of final consideration, is it's not necessarily important how well written the letter is. I think a lot of students say, well, my English teacher is going to write the best letter. That's not nearly as important as the actual content that's being shared. So even if your math teacher has a tendency to just write bullet points that share your strengths and weaknesses, that's going to be much better than a narrative piece that doesn't say a whole lot about you as, as a person. So some different things to consider, but I would say that those three primary ideas, core subject, 11th grade, and then diversity in order um, are the sort of considerations for a letter of recommendation. And Kathy, I think we've got time for one more for you. If we can find one okay. here
4: this one's quick can one. do yeah. quickly.
1: Um, Judy's,
4: Judy's do you, what about
1: Judy's question? Is that a good one? Yeah. Yep. All right. All right. I want my child to be responsible for his educational costs. All right, Judy, I like that. The federal loan limits aren't enough to cover his tuition fees, room, and board. Are there loans available for him to borrow in his own name?
4: That's a pretty quick answer, actually. The answer is usually not. So the federal loan limits, just to make everyone clear, for a dependent undergraduate student, so a traditional 18- to 22-year-old, um, the limits are that that student can borrow essentially 27000 over the course of four years and Mm 31000 total if they take longer than four years to get their bachelor's degree. Um, So the government limits that for a reason, right, because the government doesn't want to put themselves on the hook for too much debt for undergraduate students. Um, So beyond that, there is a federal parent loan that parents can borrow. There are private loans out there, and some states offer loans. But generally, for an 18-year-old who has no credit and no job, Those loans are going to require a cosigner. So there are very few loans that would, very few lenders that would lend. In fact, there are no lenders that I'm aware of that would lend to a first year student um, with no credit, without a cosigner. Later on in his college career, if he's actually got income and has started to establish credit, it's possible, but it might be a very expensive loan.
1: And he would mm. have to have some significant part-time job income, like several thousand dollars. Gotcha. So, just, um, just as um, hard, how, how would you, so Judy wants her, her son to be financially responsible for college. Is there, is there any other tip that you might give if a loan is not an option? Are there other ways that you might recommend a, a student have some skin in the game uh, with their parents supporting them financially?
4: Sure. Um, I think that they can, well, there's working, of course, and that that can't cover a lot, but I think it's important for parents to set clear expectations Um, if your student, well, that your student should get a summer job and save a certain amount during the summer. It's perfectly reasonable to say, I expect you to have X amount to contribute toward the cause by the end of the summer Um, or during the school year, um, getting a part-time job on campus to help contribute to books and personal expenses so that maybe some of the summer earnings can go toward the actual bill. So they're certainly working. And then in terms of the financing piece, I think it's important to have clear conversations up front about who's going to be responsible for repayment and then doing the math um, to understand what that repayment will look like so that you're really understanding how realistic it is to expect your child to repay whatever it is you're borrowing. Perfect. All right, Kathy. Dining. I think right.
1: uh, I think we've given each other the third degree for long enough this afternoon. so uh, <laughs> why don't we table some of these questions for next time? Sounds good. All right, perfect. Thanks for coming on the show and addressing the questions. As always, it's, it's been a pleasure. Uh, for those of you out there who have your own questions, remember you can always send them in at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com or you can post them on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash college coach. And even for those questions we don't answer on the air, we often use them to create segment ideas. So tune in to future shows to see if we talk about what you might have asked about in the past. Next week, we're back with an all new show to help you get ready for the fall season. Common app expert and research guru Elise Krantz will describe the changes to the Common App from last year, we'll talk about the variance in financial aid awards across many different institutions, and we'll do a deep dive on accelerated degrees and whether they're right for you. In the meantime, enjoy those precious weeks before the return to school this fall, and remember that whenever you hit a bump in the road to college, we'll be here to help you smooth it out. Enjoy your day.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In...